Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. I started there last week. Look, we looked at verses 1 through 3. And today we'll start looking at verses 4 through 7. Luke chapter 15. This is a somewhat well-known passage of Scripture. The parable that's contained here has three parts. Um, let me see if I can get there. There you go. My Bible, which is a New King James Version, has at the top of verse 1, the parable of the lost sheep, and then at the top of verse 8, the parable of the lost coin, and then at the top of verse 11, the parable of the lost son. I tried to prove to you last week that I think this is just one parable with three scenes, okay? He spoke this parable to them, saying, verse 3 says that. So after telling you what parables are, stories that can reflect reality in the day, but it doesn't have to. In this case, it kind of does. In verses 4 through 7, we'll see sheep and looks like a shepherd. So in the first century, it was very easy to make the connection between sheep and shepherds. But parables are are told for a reason, that is, they're thrown out there to teach something. And in this context, we have the disciples, we know that from from chapter 16, verse 1, the disciples were there. We have tax collectors and sinners present, we know that from the text, and we have Pharisees and scribes. In one sense, Jesus spoke this parable with three scenes, three parts, to all of them, but in another sense, it's primarily aimed at the Pharisees and the scribes. Let's read verses 1 through 7. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, grumbled, sniveled, whined, whatever word you want, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. What a terrible thing. Jesus hung around people like us. Uh, By the way, if that's not true, we're in big trouble. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, If he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was Lost. No amens? He finds lost sheep? I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 
just persons who need no repentance. Now, let me give you a few words on how I want to approach verses 4 through 7. If you're wondering, is he going to get all the way through verse 7 today? The answer is no. Why? Because it's 2024. It's not, we're, we don't live in the first century. We, we, we don't have the cultural information they had, so it distances us from the text in that sense. And we don't have, most of us, probably all of us, including me, don't have the knowledge of the Old Testament that his audience would have had, especially the Pharisees and scribes. So I got I to gotta set up the passage for you by reading Genesis 1-1 all the way through the book of Malachi. No. I have to set the passage up. I, I, I need to put in your mind and in mine some aspects of the Old Testament that I think will help you understand what's going on in this part of the parable. So I will do a verse-by-verse exposition of the passage. But first, we'll stand back and make some high-level observations from the text and then from elsewhere to help us understand what's going on. Hopefully, um, this won't be a lecture, and you'll see the wisdom of that. So here's my first high-level observation. It's important to constantly remind ourselves of Jesus' primary intended audience. Not that the disciples couldn't hear and couldn't learn, not that the sinners and tax collectors couldn't hear and couldn't learn, but his primary focus, his primary focus is on the Pharisees and scribes because if you remember at verse 3, it says, verse 2, it says this, they were complaining, they were grumbling, they were murmuring. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So, right after that, he spoke this parable to them saying, okay? So primarily, it's aimed right at them, not that we can't or anybody else can't learn from it. So he's speaking to fellow rabbis, teachers, Pharisees and scribes, theologians of the day, who constantly studied the Hebrew scriptures. They knew what the Old Testament said, though they didn't always know what it meant. By the way, you ever feel that way? I know what it says. I just don't know what it means. I've been reading through some of the minor prophets. I'm going, I know what it says. Not sure I always know what it means, though. But these guys, though they didn't know what it meant... They thought they did, okay? And they lived by what they thought it meant, and they prided themselves in their knowledge and in their external so-called piety so that any allusions to the Old Testament in Jesus' words would have been picked up by them, by the Pharisees and the scribes. So if Jesus is not only using the culture of the day, sheep and shepherds. But if he's also using the Old Testament of the day, they're going to know both. And we're, 2,000 years later, we're in need of 
what's the culture all about, and then what's this Old Testament background. So since they would have known this, we're going to see that Jesus' words are very confrontational. Jesus confronts the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day. He rebukes them. His words are also interpretations and applications of various parts of the Old Testament. He's going to use the old, he's going to assume the Old Testament while he rebukes them, and he's going to also present to us who he is and what he has come to do. Some of the concepts found, or at least implied, by Jesus' words here apply to the Pharisees and scribes. Some of them apply to Jesus, and some of them to lost or saved sinners elsewhere. So in one sense, everybody here fits in this parable somehow, some way, or can learn something from it about themselves, about Jesus, and about fake religious leaders. Another high-level observation is this. Notice some structural elements of our passage. This is why you came here, to, to look at structural elements of our passage. That was a joke. There are parallels, for instance, in verses 4 and 7. In verse 4, notice a U199 pattern. Very interesting, U199 pattern. What man among you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness? In verse 7, same pattern. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just per persons who need no repentance. Now for us... You might be going, why are you showing us that? Big deal. It's there on purpose. Okay, something's going on here. Verse 4 and verse 7 are related. Note also the progression from lost, found, rejoice, restore, to rejoice, found, lost in the middle section of our passage. Watch this. And go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Now, verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, there's the restoration thing. He goes out there, he gets this lost sheep, he finds a sinner in the 21st century like you, and he draws him effectually to himself, and then he plops him in a church. Sorry, I already interpreted I shouldn't have done that. He restores him. He calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. You know what the old guys would say? The brethren are taking the supper with the newly found lost sheep. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. So you see that lost, found, rejoice, restore... Rejoice found lost. And you're saying, well, why are we looking at that? Because it's in there on purpose. Something's going on here. 
At the heart of the middle section in the th- is the theme of, and when he comes home, that's in the middle. You see that? We have lost, found, rejoice. Then we have rejoice, found, lost. And what's in the middle? And when he comes home, restoration. There's a middle part, and then the parts above it and below it are connected in a reverse order. There's a word for that. You want to know what it is? I'm not sure if I've ever used this word. It's a chiasm. Wow. It's a chiasm from the Greek letter X, key. And what is that? Well, it's a, it's a form of literature, form, that is. It's words put together in a certain way that introduce, have an introduction and a conclusion that are related, but usually inverted in the order, opposite order, with something, in this case, right in the middle. Andrew's back there going, I already knew that. Now, for us, we're going, why are you sharing that with us? Because I don't know how many places that structure occurs in the Old Testament. I think probably less than a lot of scholars tell us today. But it does, a lot of places, especially in the Psalms and the prophets. You have that structure, that chiastic structure, where there's a heart, a core, the big issue restoration, salvation, okay? And then an introduction and a conclusion that are related usually in opposite order. Anyway, that's not in the notes. I shouldn't have said, probably shouldn't have used that word, but now you know. And what am, why am I saying this to you? Because it's there, number one. Number two, guess who else would have seen this? Maybe the Pharisees and the scribes? So restoration's right in the middle. He comes home. He calls his friends and he calls his neighbors, which I think are the same. Uh, Some people say, friends are the saints on the earth and neighbors are the saints in heaven and the angels. I don't know. Could be. Tom's rolling his eyes. Now, why does he do this? Why does he come home? Why does he call his friends and neighbors? Why? The lost has been found. That's a big deal. The lost has been restored. The lost is now saved and safe. So this way of structuring the story is common in ancient uh, literature. Oh, I did have the word in my notes. Look at that. Chiasm. It is... Not a wild stretch of the imagination to think that the Pharisees and scribes would have known this, would have seen it, would have heard it really quickly. A third high-level observation is this. Consider three Old Testament passages that I think are in the mind of Jesus while speaking these words. And I think the Pharisees and the scribes would have made the connections. Now you're going, how can you get in the mind of Jesus? Well, I can't, but I can read his words in the context not only of Luke 15, but the entire book of Luke, the entire New Testament, and guess what other context? 
the Old Testament. What a novel idea. Read the words of Jesus in light of what the Old Testament already says. Ah, the words of Jesus here are spoken to them, not exclusively, but primarily. Who's the them? The Pharisees and scribes. What was their knowledge bank? The Old Testament, and they thought they knew what it meant, and they thought they were righteous and didn't need repentance as well. I'm going to win this battle. I have the microphone. So it's, so it's incumbent upon us, necessary for us. If we're going to understand this portion of the parable, we got to at least a little bit fertilize, not fertilize, but get information into our minds that would have been just common for the primary recipients of it, the Pharisees and the scribes. One man puts it this way, here Jesus is retelling a classical story already well known to his listeners. That's interesting. Jesus is retelling a story already well known. His scholarly Pharisaic audience will first think of Psalm 23, Interesting, I'm still quoting. Then ponder Jeremiah 23, 1 through 6. We're going to read all these texts. And Ezekiel 34, 1 through 31. I remember when I first read that, I'm going, how can you say that? And then I went and read those three passages, and I'm going, oh my, Jesus is assuming not only the entirety of the Old Testament, but specifically here, picking up on themes from these passages and elsewhere to confront these religious leaders, to rebuke them, and to, and to teach his person and work through the vehicle of a parable which utilizes not only the Old Testament, but first century sheep and shepherds. Did Jesus ever do that elsewhere? Yeah, a lot of places, right? And uh, you can go back and listen to the 58 sermons on John 10 that I delivered, where Jesus uses the shepherd motif again, assuming the Old Testament and preaching his person and work in light of it. So let's read Psalm 23. We're going to, yesterday I was thinking, I'm going to read a lot of scripture tomorrow. There you go. Thank you. That's okay. I'm going to read Psalm 23. Mario's been teaching that at our uh, meetings over at the Cobb. Psalm 23. I want you to listen to Psalm 23. And then I want you to listen to a quote by somebody. And then Jeremiah 23, 1 through 6. I won't get to Ezekiel until the second service. But here again is Luke 15, 4 through 7, and then Psalm 23, 1, uh, 1 through 6. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Now, what I want you to be thinking now is, what, where are the connections that the pastor's going to make here in the Old Testament? Do you think there's a connection I'm going to make 
between what Jesus says here in verse 5, lays it on his shoulders. Am I going to try to make a connection with the Old Testament? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Can I? Yes. Is it fabulous, marvelous, wonderful, like awe-inspiring once you see it? I, I hope it is for you. It was for me when I saw that. Rejoicing. Verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I won't lack. I don't lack anything. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That, those words or words synonymous with them are all over the Old Testament, for my name's sake. Yea, that means God has promised something and then he subsequently fulfills his promise and he says, I'm doing this because I swore an oath. It's for my name's sake, which means for us, whenever God swears a promise, we can bank on it. Verse four, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23. Now here's what one man says. In Psalm 23, 5, the story shifts from animals to people. Ha. God, Luke does the same, right? Well, Jesus does the same in Luke, right? He sh it shifts from animals to people. So we know that there's metaphor in the parable, right? Words that signify things that actually signify other things. By the way, words are things that signify things that can sometimes signify other things, right? That's what happens here. Sheep are assumed in the passage and shepherds are assumed in the passage. But is Jesus just talking about first century shepherding, shepherdology? No. In Psalm 23, 5, the story shifts from animals to people. God, the good shepherd, suddenly becomes God, the generous host. 
who prepares a meal anoints my head and fills my cup. The story concludes in the house of the Lord, where the psalmist intends to dwell forever. This unforgettable combination of dramatic images is not easily forgotten, end of quote. So here's my point after that quote. I think you can hear echoes of Psalm 23 in the parable of Luke 15. I don't think that's a stretch of anyone's imagination. Psalm 23 is in the Bible, and it is echoed pretty clearly in Luke chapter 15. There's So when you start to think through this stuff, then you go read somebody like um, Augustine, or even in the 17th century, um, that guy. What's his name? I forgot his name. Doesn't matter what his name is. They start, when they read parables like this, they're like bringing in all kinds of passages and texts and saying, this is what Jesus means by what he's saying. Now, can you ever go too far with that? Yeah, you can be wrong. But none of us are ever wrong when we read a text and think, I think it means this, right? We're always right. No. But I think with the lens of Psalm 23 and and then reading this, things start to become alive. Let's go to Jeremiah 23. If we're a Pharisee or a scribe, I think Jeremiah 23 is going to bite us. Woe, Jeremiah 23, 1 through 6. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, against the shepherds who feed my people, you have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. Whatever that means, it doesn't sound good, right? Behold, I will attend to you, but I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. Ever heard that before? Be fruitful and multiply. I will set up shepherds over them, who will feed them. So this is Jeremiah. He's talking about the future, right? I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming. You ever heard that before? Read the prophets. Behold, the days are coming. And then quite often, the next words you read are about the Messiah, about Jesus. Days are coming, says the Lord, that here it is again. It's about Jesus that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. You ever heard of that before, branch of righteousness? Probably have. Well, most of you have been in my John sermon. So you have. You just forgot about it. Or you might recall, yeah, I have read that, but I don't remember it in Jeremiah. It's because it's not only in Jeremiah. We're going to look at some of the places it's at. That I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. 
This branch is called righteousness. If you have a New King James Version, branch is capitalized. You ever wondered why sometimes they capitalize words? Because it's interpretive. They're saying, this is a unique person. It's just not some generic guy. A king ah, shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. Interesting. Jehovah Tzidkenu. That's a hymn by that Scottish Presbyterian guy that died when he was 29. Forgot his name. And it comes from this. Who? McShane. There you go. So this is sharp criticism, right? If we're on a timeline and the Genesis is over here and Malachi is over here, we're at Jeremiah, okay? So we're a few hundred years before the incarnation of the Son of God, and sharp criticism from the Lord comes through the prophet, and it's aimed at bad shepherds of Israel who have lost their flock. The bad shepherds, they destroy. The bad shepherds... They drive away. They scatter. They don't think they're doing this. And they do not attend to the flock. God announces judgment upon them. God says he will gather the remnant of the flock. That remnant language is its not just here. It's in the other prophets. And when you read the promises connected to the remnant who will be saved, you know, guess where it terminates? In the first century, I think, first of all, with the apostles and then the other Jews that were saved. And oftentimes in these remnant passages, you'll see not only a remnant of ethnic Jews being saved in the future through a servant, the Lord, the branch of righteousness, but you'll see after that, Guess who connects themselves to those people? Thank you. Gentiles, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. Paul didn't make that up. It's what God promised. He would save a remnant of Jews, and then Gentiles would be added to that community. Anyway, let's keep going here. God announces judgment upon them, these shepherds. God says he will gather the remnant of the flock and bring them back. He promises new faithful shepherds. God himself will raise up David's righteous branch who comes out of Israel and is a a wise king. This branch is called the Lord, our righteousness. He will save the flock And they will dwell securely, this Lord, our righteousness person, this, by the way, you think it's, he's talking about ancient David? He's going to infuse David's soul back into his corpse, which is by then, by now, decayed. He's going to raise up physical David? You think that's what he's talking about? Or maybe... He's talking about great David's greater son. 
That's a line from a hymn, right? He will save the flock and they will dwell securely. Now, remember I said, I hope this isn't a lecture. Here's the lecture part of it. Okay, on a side note, though I think very instructive and illustrative of the Old Testament's use of the old, listen to these words. This is Isaiah 4.2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. In that day, branch of the Lord. Interesting. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. Here shall, here shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Watch this one. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 11. By the way, that text is memory serving me correctly, cited by the New Testament, or at least alluded by the New Testament to apply to Jesus. But listen to the language there. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear the Lord, branch, I have a bunch of more texts here, but let's just look at Zechariah. Listen to these words. Zechariah 6, 12, and 13. Then speak to him, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, behold, the man whose name is the branch. Now, New King James Version, the one I was using, capitalizes man. Behold, the man whose name is the and. Every single word in the, every single letter of branch is capitalized with an exclamation point. That's pretty interpretive, isn't it? From his place, he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. I will build my church. And one of them will end up being here in Lancaster, California, 2024. And he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now, some of you are already making connections, right? I thought God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, 23 and Psalm 89 that somebody from him would end up being a temple builder in the future. Yes. You ever wondered if Zechariah might have read, like, 2 Samuel, like Psalm 89, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah? Well, if you haven't, you just did, because I put it in your brain. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. The branch mentioned in Jeremiah 23 is mentioned in several places in the Old Testament. This branch comes from the line of King David to whom God promised a temple-building son in the future who upon his resurrection would sit on his throne and rule God's people from heaven. It's exactly what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 
in relation to the resurrection of the Christ and his ascension and ruling in terms of what Psalm 16 promised, written by David. We're not going to go there. Because I know if we did, I'd go five other places and lose my place here. Who is this branch of righteousness upon whom will rest the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom and understanding? Now, hopefully by now you're going, duh. Well, if you are, that means you're following. It's not me. Praise Jehovah. (laughs) It's not you. It's not corporate Israel. Listen, hear our Lord's apostle. Hear his words. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness. Where did he get that from? Oh, he's just making it up. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 1.30. When I thought of that the other day, I'm going, when I was going through this pa- these passages again, especially this Jeremiah one, I'm going, wait a minute, some of the language used here, Paul picks it up and applies it to Christ. Here the same apostle praying for the Colossians, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Even those words find some sort of pre-echo in, pre-echo, is that the word? I don't know. You know what I mean. It's, they're in the branch passages, at least the Jeremiah one. Speaking of our Lord, he says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3. Jeremiah kind of language connected to the branch. So it sure sounds like uh, not only that Zechariah read other portions of what we call the Old Testament, but guess who else read it? Paul read the Old Testament and explains the Jesus having come, suffered, died, raised, rose, and ascended. He explains that, or this, in light of that. And I think also, should be clear, he uses language from branch passages and he applies them not to us, but to Jesus. Now, why did I read those two texts? Psalm 23, well, actually I read more than, I think I read four or five. My point in reading Psalm 23, Jeremiah 23, one through six, portion of Isaiah four and 11 and Zechariah six is this, to provide an Old Testament background of issues related to our Lord's parable spoken to the religious leaders of his day. Okay, so I'm, I'm putting stuff into your head so that when we go back to it, we're gonna go, oh my, this is way better than I ever thought. And having an Old Testament background and knowledge at the front of our mind is going to help us mine out some glorious riches from these this parable. Oh, I said these parables? <laughs> Slipped. This parable, especially scene one. 
These men knew what we call the Old Testament, and they knew it well. And Jesus, by this time, was a well-known rabbi. He had the term, which you don't, you don't get that free, freebie called, to be called a rabbi in the first century. You have to earn it. And so he was a theologian. They were theologians. They were whining, complaining about him being with sinners and tax collectors. And he's basically saying this, guys, the Old Testament indicts you. I'm the brand, I'm the righteous branch. Get out of my way. I'm going to go find and save the lost. You guys don't do this. You're condemned. You're blind guides leading the blind. I give sight to the blind. I go get helpless, lost sheep, sinners, and I throw them on my shoulder and I take them to glory. So they knew the Old Testament. Our Lord assumes this and purposefully relates his parable to various Old Testament themes. I, I just started or mentioned Psalm 23, the first part of Jeremiah 23, couple texts in Isaiah, and one in Zechariah. We could, we could spend hours making connections with other texts, illuminating our minds so that we come to the, this parable properly stocked with information to go, oh man, there's a lot more to verses four through seven than meets the eye. Jesus is indicting these religious leaders for abandoning their post. Now they thought they were doing what they should do, but they were utterly deceived. But Jesus isn't just saying, you guys, are. this is unrighteous sniveling. This is unrighteous groaning. This is unrighteous complaining. He's not only doing that, he is doing that. But he's also teaching us about who he is and what he came to do. When, after the break, when we read the entire chapter of Ezekiel 34, you'll see why I put it in the second hour, because it's long. We're going to see some glorious things there. God says in Ezekiel 34, basically, and I'll rain on my own parade here, get out of my way. I will seek the lost. I will find my sheep. I will raise up David. New David. Great David's greater son. Our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus not only indicts the false teachers, the Pharisees and scribes, he also teaches us something about who he is and what he has come to do. Who do you think the finder is here? It's the finder, the one who goes out and finds and then says, rejoice with me. It's the second graders all know the answer. It's Jesus. <laughs> What a, no, what a novel idea. Jesus would tell parables and highlight his person and work. It's not a novel idea. He did that over and over and over. So he's teaching us 
He's indicting, okay? He's prosecuting. He's a prophet. He's prosecuting these attorneys, these Pharisees, these scribes, these religious leaders, all the while teaching not only them but us something about his person, his identity, who he is, and his work, what he has come to do. The Old Testament indicts bad shepherds while promising the good shepherd. Isn't that interesting? The Old Testament indicts bad shepherds and in the very same context promises a good shepherd. What do you think Jesus is doing here? And where do you think the basis for that came? Well, he just thought it up. And then he read Luke's words and he goes, wow, I'm smarter than I thought. Jesus was a rabbi. According to his human nature, he understood, he learned the teaching of the Old Testament. He came to the conviction, I don't know at what age, this is a weird question. According to his human nature, did he have all the information in the womb that he did when he public, went to the public, his, in his public ministry? The answer is no. At what point did he realize, I'm the incarnate son of God. I believe in the hypostatic union. I don't know. But his identity and his vocation, he learned, I'm not making that word up, it's in Luke chapter 2, um, and it's in Hebrews chapter 5 or wherever, 2. Maybe it's not in Luke 2. Mr. Concordance is looking it up for me here. It's not good when the guy in the front row, his eye, eyebrow goes up because <laughs> he knows his Bible really well. Where was I? Oh, at some point... The identity the vo and vocation, who he was and what he came to do, was learned according to his human nature from the Old Testament. So he has this knowledge of who he is and what he came to do. And when he uses parables, that knowledge is being utilized. And he's assuming, especially with Pharisees and scribes, that they had the same, at least, information but maybe, and certainly, not the same interpretation. So, by the way, when Jesus does use the Old Testament, whether he quotes it or alludes to it, like I think he does here, do you think he gets it right? Sometimes? Or every time? Every. By the way, we need him to interpret the Old Testament for our righteousness because we misinterpret the texts at times. We sin, we violate the law of God. We say God says things that he doesn't say and so we're guilty even for that. And so that's another reason for the incarnation, why? Because we needed, some, we needed to be righteous in relation to our interpretation of the Old Testament because we're unrighteous. Jesus interpreted it right. By the way, did Jesus reinterpret the Old Testament to speak about him even though it didn't speak about him? No, he interpreted it according to its ultimate divine intent. So 
The Old Testament indicts bad shepherds while promising the good shepherd. Now, you know what the New Testament does in part? It indicts bad shepherds, bad, sh bad shepherds, and presents to us in living color the good shepherd, Jesus, for us and for our salvation. Jesus is the good shepherd, by the way, who will give faithful shepherds for the sheep as well. He came to live and die for his sheep. You go, well, you're making this up. Go back to John 10. It's, it's all there. Okay, I think John 10's relying on some of this stuff too. If you know John 10, you know that he opens up, it opens up by saying something that's really appropriate to my point right here. It's a good point. It's very appropriate. Uh, oh, he talks about bad shepherds and hirelings and sh shepherds that go enter into their ministry through the wrong door and gate and all that stuff. And he presents himself as the antithesis of the bad shepherds. Jesus then is this shepherd, this good shepherd. He came to live and die for his sheep. His sheep hear his voice and follow him and are very safe and secure in his mighty arms. Okay, that, that's a sentence I wrote, but if you know your Bible, you know your Bible, not your Bible. I'm going to Mississippi on Wednesday, so I'm starting to try to spike like what I do or however they talk. If you know your Bible, you know that that last sentence I spoke came from the Bible, but I rephrased it. I used words that aren't in the word to explain the word, which I've been doing for 45 minutes now, which is fine. His voice, they hear his voice, they follow him, they're very safe and secure in his mighty, let's say, almighty arms. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness. By the way, the New King James says wilderness. I think that's a good translation. I'll tell you why next week. And go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Somebody came up to me last week and said, who are the 99 that he leaves? We'll get there next week. Pharisees and scribes. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. This comes up again, I think, in verse 10 or 11. Over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Hopefully you're starting to realize this, the pastor's right. There's a lot of stuff going on here that I didn't see at first. That when your mind is stocked at least a little more with the Old Testament, you can start to see Jesus is not only rebuking, 
Jesus is saying, I'm the finder. You are lost if you're not a Christian. And Jesus, does he still seek and save that which was lost? If that reply applied only to the first century, we're damned. Or the way John Gershner would say it, we're damned. You know, it's not a good thing to be damned, devoted to destruction, just awaiting the time of the judgment and then you're cast in, in, into hell. If that applied only to the first century, uh, finding the lost. By the way, that's the title of a book, right? I mentioned that book last week. Finding the Lost. Why do you think that guy titled that book that way? Because that's what this is about. Not just the indictment of the false teachers, but the presentation of this new David branch of righteousness, full of wisdom, full of knowledge, full of understanding, who, who gives that as a gift to those who believe in him. This new David uh, is the antithesis of those indicted, and he comes in the midst of those indicted, and he rebukes them, and he does, he, he does everything they ought to have done, but they didn't do. They ought to have ate and drank with sinners and, and compelled them to come to, to, to Christ, ultimately, but they didn't get the Old Testament right. It was a book of morals for them. It was a book of ethics for them. It wasn't a book about the Redeemer. Its scope, its target, its goal for them was do. That's not the way Christ read the Old Testament. You know the way he read it? This is about the identity and vocation of himself. And that's the way the apostles read it. And that's the way we should read it. And went, read it? Read it? And when we do, wonderful and glorious things start to jump off the page that we're going, oh my, I never saw that before. Uh, when, the more bibeline our blood is, Spurgeon used that. No, I think Spurgeon or somebody. Our blood should be bibeline. The more bibeline our blood is, the more connections we see like this. By the way, the more bibeline our blood is, the more we go, when we sing hymns, we go, oh my, that is so good. Now I know where he got it from. He reads the Old Testament as a document that ultimately came into existence to present the promises of God with reference to the man we call Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. Well, we're going to sing a hymn, and hopefully it's, I forgot what hymn it was, but hopefully it helps us with this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to see marvelous, wonderful, glorious things from it. The Spirit breathes upon the word and brings its truths to sight. This is not the work of man, it is the work of God. The Spirit causing the word 
to become clear to us. We thank you for finding lost sinners like us out in the wilderness of unbelief, out in the context of danger, without recognizing the danger that we were in. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. And like sheep, we're not cognizant, we're not conscious of the grave danger that we're in outside of Christ. And when the Lord Jesus came, and ever since then, he doesn't just leave everybody out there in this very mysterious way. He comes to us in our filth. He takes us, cleans us. He throws us over his shoulder, and he brings us home, ultimately, to the eternal state. Help us to um, not just know these things and be able to make the connections with the Old Testament or other places in the New Testament, but to live by them, to be more grateful, more thankful, more zealous for your name's sake. Help us to sing now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.